0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. In our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we've been laying the groundwork for the last of Jesus' major discourses, which is the Olivet Discourse, and we come to the end this morning of laying the groundwork. And we will consider for our text Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. These are the words of God. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Lord, our God, we ask that you would bless us through your word by the Holy Spirit, that You, Yourself, would preach it to us and bring it to us, bring it to our very minds, bring it to our very hearts, bring it to our very wills, that we would be Your faithful children, glorifying You in the earth. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, oftentimes in the New Testament, we read of the last days, of the end of the age, and of the world to come. And as moderns, we assume that those phrases are all referring to future events because, after all, it is obvious by the fact that we are here looking at one another that neither the world nor time have come to an end. But if we pay careful attention, we read things in the New Testament that indicate that Jesus and the apostles were living in the last days, at the end of the age, and that the world to come was dawning. Our text from Hebrews chapter 9 says that it was at the end of the ages that Christ appeared to sacrifice Himself and to put away sin. Paul says the same sort of thing to the first century Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says that everything that happened to Israel in the Old Testament, and especially the Exodus generation, happened as examples. And so they were written, says Paul, for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Similarly, the apostles tell the first century Christians that they were living in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. It says that God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. So the last days were the days in which Jesus appeared. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter says that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In James chapter 5, James uh, blasts the wealthy Jews who were persecuting and putting down the Christians, and he tells them, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, The Apostle John says, little children, it is the last hour. Not just the last days, not even the last day. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Peter, preaching the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, is explaining what's happening as the Spirit has come upon them and now the apostles are speaking the gospel in languages that they don't know. And people are wondering what is going on and some are accusing them of being drunk. And he's saying, no, we're not drunk. If you want to understand that, he says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Quoting Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5, warning uh, Jewish Christians who were becoming discouraged and were in danger of turning away from Christ and turning toward a Christless Jude- Judaism. They are warned of the danger of what they're doing and they're appeal to, and it says, you have tasted, you've tasted the good word of God and you have tasted the powers of the age to come seeing and being around and experiencing the power of the spirit as he was working among the christian church is referred to as the powers of the age to come in 1 corinthians chapter 7 and verse 31 paul says to them in the first century the form of this world is passing away and then first in first peter chapter 4 verse 7 Peter says to them, the end of all things is at hand. It's now. It's coming. It is near. Well, what are we to make of all of this? Well, the typical evangelical response over the last 150 years or so has been to say that the apostles were mistaken. They were mistaken in thinking that those things pertain to their generation and to their time. Actually, these things were going to be put off for at least 2,000 years. Of course, skeptics and liberal theologians have had a field day with that, for they know that you cannot get around the straightforward, repeated assurances that the last days, the end of the age, and the world to come would occur in the first century, or the claims of Jesus as He many times made, as in, for example, Matthew 10, when He says to the apostles, referring to their mission in in the book of Acts, He says, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel. You will not have finished evangelizing the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's no way to get around that straightforward language and that's what the skeptics and liberal theologians have uh, understood. And it has become one of the main bases of, upon which they have said that Jesus and the scriptures must be rejected because obviously they are full of errors. Well. I want to draw some biblical threads together today so that we can understand what the Apostles meant when they said these things. I don't think they were mistaken at all. I think they knew exactly what they were talking about and they were exactly right. And I want to show you that if we are careful and prayerful Bible students, there is no need to allow these kind of things to get us upset, for if we prayerfully study the Word of God, we will see that indeed the Apostles were living in the last days that is, the last days of the Old Testament Jewish economy. They were living at the end of the age, the end of the Old Testament Jewish economy, and they were living at the dawning of the world to come, that is, the dawning of the New Testament world governed by Jesus Christ. And we will see why that was and why that is such a big deal, that the apostles would describe it in such cosmic language as the last days, the end of the age and the world to come. So to understand this, we have to get the big picture. And to do that, we have to start where the Bible starts, and that is in Genesis. When we go back to Genesis and we look at the big picture, we see that God created man to be His image and to rule in His name over the earth. So man is told to take dominion and to rule over the earth. And man is initially given, it's like, a, it's like Adam initially is in an internship. He's interning to learn what the job is all about. And he's given an initial job. He is to guard the Garden of Eden, and he is to guard his wife Eve. He is to guard them. He is to protect them. He is to make sure that their welfare is placed first. So man is put in this role. He is being raised up to be the king over the earth in God's name. And he's given the initial job of guarding the garden and guarding Eve. Man lost that privilege when he sinned. He lost that privilege when he sinned, and we can see this by the fact that after God places the curse upon uh, the serpent, the curse upon uh, the earth, the curse upon the woman, the curse upon man, man is kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and the job of guarding it is given to an angel. This is very significant. It says that there was an angel there that was like a flaming fire or like a flaming sword of fire that guarded the garden. Man could not go back in. So man has not only lost access into the sanctuary, the special place of fellowship with God, he has also lost his job. His job now has been given to an angel. So man's job of guarding and ruling was given to angels until the promised seed of the woman could come to bruise the head of the serpent because that is what God promised. He would send a seed of the woman to bruise the head of the serpent. Now, by persuading Adam to heed his word and to disobey God, Satan obtained a judicial claim of right and authority over mankind and the earth. Let me say that. Satan obtained a judicial claim of right and authority over mankind and the earth. We see evidence of this when Satan tempts Jesus in Luke chapter 4. In one of the temptations, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said this to him, All this authority, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. He doesn't say, I took it. He says, it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, all will be yours. Now, this is not the language of a hijacking. This is the language of a claim of right. This is a judicial claim. And you can see how this would be the case. Because Satan, coming before the throne of God, could rightfully say, Adam, your image, your son whom you created to be king over the earth, he obeyed my word, not yours. He is my servant, not yours. He has imaged me and not you. And you have placed the earth under him. Therefore, unless you're prepared to destroy Adam and Eve, to wipe them out, to destroy the earth you've created, you must acknowledge my claim of right. And he was exactly right about all of that. So this is why we see in the Old Testament, Satan had judicial access to heaven. Satan had judicial access to heaven. He had legal status in the courtroom of God. And he used that status to accuse God's people. We can see evidence of that in the book of Job, when we have Satan presenting himself before God in heaven. He comes up before God in heaven uh, along with all the holy angels. And we're wondering, what is Satan doing there? Well... The throne room, in a kingdom, the the throne room is the courtroom. When we have uh, the two women present the court case before Solomon, when he first becomes king, where do they present their case? In the throne room. The throne room is the courtroom. Satan's got a case. He's got a claim. He can come into court. He comes into God's courtroom. And he seeks the right to sift Job. He seeks the right to sift Job. Now, we also see evidence of this, that in the Old Testament... Satan and his demons were behind the false gods of the pagan nations. The false gods were false, not in the sense that they were imaginary, people just coming up with stuff, like we like to say now, they were just coming up with stuff uh, because uh, they couldn't explain things any other way. No, that's not what is meant by false gods. False gods does not mean imaginary gods. What it means is gods that are really higher powers, but who are not the true gods that's what is meant by false gods. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is explaining to the Corinthians why it is not okay for them to go to one of the many temples that were present in the city of Corinth and to share in the meals that had been offered to different idols. And he's telling them he said, look, we we understand nothing happens to the meat. Nothing happens to the meat. We understand that. But he says, this is what you have to understand. The things that the Gentiles sacrifice to idols, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Okay? There is a power behind these things. It's just not the true God. In Psalm 106, in verse 37, it's talking about uh, the Israelites who became unfaithful and followed the ways of the Gentiles. And it says in verse 37, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Okay. Also in the Old Testament, we see that angels, both holy and fallen, and it's hard for us to, to understand exactly what's going on here, but it's clear that in some sense, angels, both holy and fallen, exercised a kind of mediatorial role with regard to the nations. In some sense, angels were actively connected to the destiny, power, and power and actions of nations and kingdoms. We see evidence of this, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 28. There it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And then God starts speaking to the king of Tyre in a personal way, and he says this, You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And uh, theologians have for for centuries rightfully taken that, I believe, as a reference to Satan. But notice that Satan in this passage is called the king of Tyre, which was one of the major powers of that day. In Daniel chapter 10, we have Daniel who's praying for Israel. And then an angel comes and appears to him. And the angel says to him this, he says, I was sent to you from the first day that you set your heart to pray and to understand these things. I was sent to you, in other words, a number of days passed, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the holy angels, came to help me. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now again, we get these sketchy, shadowy glimpses of what is going on here. It's never fully laid out for us, but clearly we see that angels, both good and bad, are associated with various kingdom powers and nations in the Old Testament. We also see that in the Old Testament, with the nation of Israel, angels are heavily involved. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's giving his great defense before the Sanhedrin, says that it was an angel, and remember, angel doesn't mean a certain sort of being. Angel simply means messenger. It refers to a function, one who is sent to accomplish a task or to give a message. He says it was the angel, the messenger, who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, and that the people received the law at the direction of angels. This is what Stephen says, Acts chapter 7, verse 38. It says, Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And then later he says that our fathers received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, what's going on with that? Because we're expressly told in Exodus that it was God who was on the mountain, right? But then Paul even muddies the waters first in 1 Corinthians 10 when he tells us that it was Christ. It was Christ who was there. It was Christ who was in the wilderness. It was Christ who was in the desert. Christ who stood before Moses on the rock. And and Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that it was Christ who was on top of Mount Sinai, speaking to Moses. It was Christ who gave the law. So what is going on with that? Well, what it means is that it was the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ before he became a man. The pre-incarnate Christ. It was God the Son, God the Word, who was with Moses on the mountain. But in the Old Testament age, he took the form of a messenger. He was not an angel, not an angel being. Remember, angel is not a reference to a type of being. It's the reference to a function. So Jesus took on the role of a messenger. And that's why you have oftentimes in the Old Testament a reference to the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Not just a messenger of the Lord, but the messenger of the Lord who will oftentimes be identified as the Lord Himself. You know the famous scene where Abraham offers up Isaac at God's command and then he's told to stay at the last minute. And then God provides a ram as a substitute. We're told in that passage that it's the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham. But then we're told it's God who is speaking to Abraham. That's one of the great moments when God makes one of the great covenant promises to Abraham. So who is it? Is it God or is it the angel of the Lord? Well, it's both because it's God the Son. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the messenger of the Lord because he is the Word of God. And so it is Christ who is there, but Christ takes on the function and the role as the messenger of God in the Old Testament. But again, we get this picture that angels have this kind of ministerial, mediatorial, if you will, role with regard to the nations and the kingdoms uh, in the Old Testament. But it wasn't like the dark side and the light side of the force like we see in Star Wars. Don't start thinking the Old Testament was that way. You have the dark side and the light side. No, throughout the Old Testament, we're told that God was at all times sovereign over all things, including Satan. Satan. But Satan, nevertheless, had legal status in heaven. He had legal access to heaven. But we see that God was sovereign. For example, Satan could not touch Job apart from God's permission. And Satan's all-out assault on Job was used by God for Job's good and God's glory. In the New Testament, Jesus tells Peter, Satan has desired to sift you. That's what he tells him. In other words, this is another scene where Satan has come before God and asked to sift someone. We know about that because Jesus says so. He says, Satan has desired to sift you. Why? It might have had something to do with the fact that Jesus told the disciples that he was going to be delivered up to be crucified, and all of, those, all of them were going to be scattered from them. They were all basically going to hightail and run. And Peter said, I will never I will never run. I will never forsake you. I will never leave, even if everybody else does. Jesus, as the Son of God, was given into Satan's hand by the Father. And we're told in the book of Acts that Satan moved the rulers and authorities of the first century to crucify Jesus. But yet this ultimate act of evil the most evil act ever committed, and the most evil act possible, the closest act ever possible to actually killing God, this ultimate act of evil and apparent triumph on Satan's part was actually an act of Satan's suicide. It says in Acts 2, verse 23, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you, speaking there to the Jewish rulers, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, none of the rulers of this age knew. Notice, none of the rulers of this age. What's he talking about? He's talking about Satan and the fallen angelic powers and their control over the civil and, and human rulers of the age. He said, none of the rulers of this age understood what they were doing, for had they understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." So, that's the picture that we have in the Old Testament. Man falling from his privileges, falling from his job, and his job being given to angels, and angels both fallen uh, and uh, holy, having this kind of a ministerial mediatorial role over the kingdoms and the nations. But we're told that as a result of the first advent of Christ, Christ is going to change all of that. Okay, But before we go there, let's jump back for just a minute and let's talk about Israel. Where did Israel fit into that? Well, with Israel, God began in a provisional way to restore man to the privileges and the role to which he was created. He began to do that in a provisional way. Think about it. At Mount Sinai, you have, uh, uh, you have the pre-incarnate Christ calling His people. You have Him delivering them out. You have them speaking God's Word. You have them, God setting up for a people everything from A to Z, from top to bottom, from front to back. Everything is laid out for them. What kind of people they are to be. And you have the temple being made, the tabernacle, where God's glory cloud comes, God's presence is. With the creation of the tabernacle, and God's presence coming and inhabiting the tabernacle. And of course, that's the pre-incarnate Christ again. Um, you have for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God dwelling among men on a permanent basis. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, the presence of God is dwelling with men on a permanent basis. Okay? For the first time since that time, you have the word of God infusing and overflowing and saturating a particular society whom God calls as His own special people. He calls them His bride. He calls them His beloved. And He calls them to be a city on a hill. He calls them to be the light to the world, to draw all other nations to Him. It was a big, big deal. In the temple of God, in little old Israel, she was never the most powerful or the biggest, in little old Israel, in this temple, heaven and earth met. It was the center of the world, because this is where heaven and earth meet. This is where God and man meet. So it was a big, big deal. But it was provisional, because no man could actually go into the presence of God, except for the high priest once a year under very specific specific instructions, which is why they tied a rope to the priest's uh, leg in case he did something wrong so they could drag him out. And it tells us in Hebrews, why was it that nobody could actually go into the presence of God? Well, it's signifying that the way into the very presence of God was not yet open. So this is provisional. And you have in the Old Testament, therefore, all of these different gradations of nearness of approach to God. You notice that? High priest alone can come in one day a year, day of atonement, into the holies of holies. That's it. Only the sons of Aaron can come into the holy place and minister there and can present the sacrifices out there in the courtyard. Okay? So the high priest can come the closest, but that's only one day of the year. Then you have the sons of Aaron's a priests who get to come closer and do certain things uh, with regard to the tabernacle. Then you have the Levites, the other Levites who were not sons of Aaron, who can carry the ark and do other things with regard to the tabernacle. So there's another nearness. And then you had nearness of approach uh, through uh, other other things. What is going on with this, some people can come nearer to God than others? That's what Hebrews is saying. God is signifying not that some people are more important than others, not that uh, some people have some kind of intrinsic closeness to Him over others. He's signifying that the way into the holiest of holies, the way into His presence was not yet open. That's what was being signified by all of that nearness of approach and all of those gradations in the Old Testament. Okay. Now, it's provisional, but Jesus is going to change all of that. Jesus is going to become a man to do it. With the coming of Christ, we have the coming of the woman's seed, the one who would bruise the serpent's head. Christ, through his death and resurrection, bruised the serpent's head, and he was exalted to the position that man was created for. He was exalted to the right hand of God. He was given all authority and all judgment was committed into his hands. He said in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We get that part. A part we often overlook is that Jesus is the judge on the last day. John chapter 5, Jesus says, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. And what is true of Christ is true of all those who are united to him by faith and the Holy Spirit. So with the the exaltation of Christ upon his ascension, there is no need anymore for a provisional. There's no need for a mediatorial governance of angels. There's no need for a provisional restoration of man to his privileges. There's no need for a provisional temple, for the reality has come. Now Jesus is the center of the world. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is where God and man meet. That means that with the coming of Jesus, and particularly with his exaltation to the right hand of God and the pouring out of the Spirit, the old age is coming to an end, and the new world is dawning. So they, you see, were indeed living in the last days. They were living in the last days of the Old Testament age. They were living in the dawning of the New World. And the 40-year period from roughly 30 AD to 70 AD, from the ascension of Jesus Christ until the destruction of the temple, you have a 40-year overlap, as it were, from the Old Age to the New Age. There's a 40-year transitional overlap there Why have a transitional overlap? Because God is merciful, that's why. God is loving and God is merciful. And when you're making a cosmic shift like that, God just doesn't do that to people like that. God gives time for people to understand what's going on. So for 40 years, the gospel is preached. The gospel of Christ, what's going on? It's all laid out in the book of Hebrews. It's all there preached so that God's people are treated with kindness and mercy and understanding. So with the ascension of Jesus Christ, angels no longer hold this role that they did. The job of governing the world is given back to man. Specifically, it is given to Jesus Christ. Listen to, what, to the way this is described in Revelation chapter 12, which is talking about the ascension of Christ. She bore a male child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and His throne. That's the ascension. What happens after that? War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. What happens when your law case gets thrown out of court? You don't have any more standing in court. You don't have any more right to be there. You can't just go down and hang out in the, ju- in the courtroom. You have to have a case. When your case is thrown out, you have to leave. If you don't leave, the U.S. Marshals are going to throw you down the courthouse steps. And that's exactly what happened to Satan. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard, when? Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now, when? Now. When was the now? Then. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. It doesn't mean Satan is no longer active. It talks about later on about Satan being bound. Look, if you handcuff somebody's hand behind their back, does that mean they're dead? No. Does it mean that they can't do anything? No. Does it mean they can't do any mischief? No. This doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean Satan's dead. It doesn't mean he's not dangerous. It doesn't mean that he's inactive. But it means that his power is different. He has no longer any claim over man or the earth, no longer any standing in the courtroom of God, and his power over the nations has now been crippled so that he is powerless to stop the great commission of Christ. The victory is a done deal, just like D-Day. After D-Day, it was a done deal in one sense. The tide had turned. The tipping point had been reached. We can see the rest of it was just pressing that great victory on until the end of the war. But that doesn't mean that there weren't battles to fight. That didn't mean that there wasn't danger. That didn't mean that there wasn't hardship. There was great danger, great battles, the Battle of the Bulge and other battles like that to be fought. But the great victory that assured total victory had already been accomplished. And what Jesus is telling us in the Great Commission is that the great cosmic spiritual D Day was a one man D Day. That was a one man battle. When all those ships showed up bringing the assaulting force, one man got off the ship Jesus Christ. We don't become involved until after D-Day. After He has won D-Day, when we can do nothing about it, then Jesus says, okay, I've won. All authority is mine in heaven and earth, and I'm going to be with you until the end of the age. Now go get them. Go get them. Well, what gives us the right to go to people and to talk to them about Jesus when they don't want to hear about Jesus? I heard a conversation in a coffee shop there was a man there, he would, he would sit there every day in this particular coffee shop, and he was obviously disabled in some kind of way. He had a hard time getting around. Um, and I saw a young person one time, a Christian, start to talk to him in a very nice way and start to say something about Jesus. And this old disabled man went into a tirade on this poor young Christian and kept saying, how arrogant, how arrogant. You're going to tell me about Jesus or tell me about your God. That's so arrogant. And 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 the young Christian was trying to be, you know, was trying to be apologetic and I didn't mean to offend I be sorry. I mean, they were they were being a model Christian, really, in every way. And I watched this disabled man just demolish them for their arrogance. Well, what does give us the right? to talk to people about Christ? What keeps it from being arrogance and a violation of people's rights? It's because Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. It's because Jesus is everybody's rightful king. He's not my personal king and your personal king. Yes, we own him personally as king. He's the world's king. Everything belongs to him. Everybody belongs to him. It's just a matter of whether they are going to acknowledge their rightful king or not acknowledge their rightful king. All the nations belong to him, and he said, go get them. He says, go, carry the gospel. And he isn't asking anybody's permission. He didn't ask our permission to save us. Thank God. He's not asking anybody else's permission. And so this is how things have changed. And this is why the Bible is not speaking with poetic hyperbole when it talks about the last days in the first century, when it talks about the end of the age, when it talks about the world to come, or when it talks about a new heavens and a new earth. It's not speaking with poetic hyperbole, because think about it. We already talked about how the world changed when God formed up Israel, gave His law, and put His presence in the temple. The world changed on that day, right? Because the presence of God is dwelling with men for the first time since the Garden of Eden. The earth is not the same as it was before that event, right? Think about when Jesus ascended into heaven. For the first time ever, for the first time ever, a man is not only in a place of comfort, Abraham's bosom, a man is in the presence of God. A man is seated on the throne of God. A man is given all authority in heaven and on earth. Heaven is changed forever. Heaven is changed physically because a man is present in heaven on the throne room of God. Heaven is changed governmentally because a man is given all authority in heaven. The earth is changed also governmentally because, again, a man has been given not angels, but a man has been given all authority over the earth. A man is the rightful king over the earth. And also, the earth has changed physically because for the first time since the the Garden of Eden, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the earth. Leaven has been put into the recipe. Leaven has been stirred in. Once you put it in, it ain't coming out, and it's not going to stay where you put it. It's not like a chocolate chip. It's going to go everywhere. It's going to change everything because it's alive. So you can see it's not poetic Uh, hyperbole to talk about a new heavens and a new earth upon the ascension of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit on Pentecost. Now, does that mean all sin is gone? No. Does that mean the curse is gone? Obviously not. What it does mean is that the new heavens and the new earth have broken in. What it means is that the age to come, the age of curseless, sinless, deathless life has broken in. Why does God have it break in in the middle rather than just all wait till the end? Because God loves sinners, that's why. God loves sinners, that's why. You see, He's not wadding this creation, the old heavens, the old earth, up like a piece of trash and throwing it away, which is what He could have done easily. He's not doing that. No, He's saving this world. He's saving this cursed world. He's saving this sinful race. He's saving this one. There's two different Greek words for new. One means totally new, start from scratch. The other one means transformed into new from the old. When it talks about the new heavens and the new earth in the New Testament, it uses the word that means transformed into new from the old. It doesn't mean totally new. It doesn't mean God's going to melt down the periodic table and start all over. That's not what it means. And why not? Again, God loves sinners. That's why. He's saving this world. He's saving this race. History is not a stalemate between Jesus and Satan, where Jesus trades Satan down, pawn for pawn, and in the process smuggles a few of Satan's souls across the border to heaven where he has some real power until finally Jesus tires of this game and knocks the whole chessboard in the air and starts all over. That is not the story of the Bible. That's not the story of history. Jesus wins in history and in eternity. He wins in this life and the next. And that is what all began, not in the future on the second advent of Christ, at the first advent of Christ. That is when it began. That is when it broke in. Now, does this make a difference? It makes a huge difference. What could be more important to an army than understanding its marching orders? How can an army be effective? Even if they have the most sincere desire to be effective, how can an army be effective if they misunderstand their marching orders? Our forefathers who settled this land understood the marching orders. They believed Jesus had inaugurated a great D-Day. And that's what the Great Commission was about. But about 150 years ago, the evangelical church as a whole lost that. We began to think that what Jesus inaugurated was a great Dunkirk, a great evacuation. And the church ever since that time is waiting to be evacuated. Now that makes a difference. That makes a difference to an army, whether they think they're supposed to be attacking or whether they're supposed to be getting ready to be evacuated. And the church has been sitting on the beach waiting to be evacuated ever since. Now the church believes they're sincere Christian, they've been evangelizing, but evangelism changes when you change from D-Day to Dunkirk. Because when when you believe you're waiting to be evacuated, what does evangelism look like? It looks like trying to persuade the local villagers to come join you on the beach and wait to be evacuated. And now you have kids who are growing up and you're still on the beach. And now you have kids getting married, and you're still on the beach. And now you have grandkids, and you have great-grandkids, and you're still on the beach. Meanwhile, life in the local village has gone to pot, right? Because all the Christians are waiting to be evacuated. And then we begin to realize when things get so bad in the village that village life affects us nevertheless, even though we're on the beach because we have to have jobs, right? Where do we have to work? In the village. So we work in the village, and where our kids have to go? They have to go to the village, and we have to buy stuff in the village, and they have to work in the village. And so the horrible life of the village, which is going to hell in handbags, it is affecting us, and it's affecting our kids and our grandkids. And so we panic. I'm talking now about the 1970s and 1980s, and we go rushing back into village life. We're going to get involved in politics, moral majority and so forth, all of which I have no problem with except for the fact that we had left. And so we come rushing back into village politics and we get involved and we're raising money and we're getting votes and we're putting candidates up and so forth. And then the village people start telling us, you can't bring your faith here. You can't bring your faith here. You can't bring your faith into the public square of the village. You can't bring it into politics and so forth. It doesn't belong here. You have to keep that out on the beach with you. That's where that stays. And we're surprised that they don't welcome us back with open arms. Why is that? Where do they get this idea that our faith has to stay buttoned up inside our hearts or out there on the beach where we're waiting to be evacuated? Where do they get that idea? Could it be that we have told them that for 150 years maybe? They believed us. It makes a huge difference. Of all of the afflictions of the modern evangelical church of which we are part, of all the challenges we have, of all the things that I would change if I could snap my fingers and change something, this is the number one thing because this has to do with honoring Jesus as Lord. This has to do with honoring Jesus as Lord. This has to do with the blessing of God upon His people. This has to do why our forefathers in the faith in the 1600s who settled this land had so much more power than we do even though they had so fewer numbers and so fewer resources. They were blessed in a way that we aren't because they honored Jesus as Lord in a way that we don't. That's why I think this is the most, the greatest need of the church today. And I believe that if Christ grants us revival, it will start at this point so I hope this will help you to understand the language of the New Testament, what is going on, why it was such a big deal. And I hope this will give you a spring in your step as you go forward to serve Christ every day, whatever He's calling you to do. And as you think about the church and as you think about witnessing for Christ, I hope this will give you a spring in your step because you know that Jesus is Lord now. You know the new heavens and the new earth have broken into this world already. And the new age and the world to come have broken in already. And the great victory has been won. And then you understand that when Jesus says, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, this new age. That means we cannot fail if we walk in Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.